Hello and welcome to episode four of our mini-series, The Driving Force, where we're exploring what really is driving the sustainability agenda in industry. This podcast is brought to you by Tribosonics. We are a transformational hard-tech technology business using unique sensing technologies to create value and drive sustainability for our global industrial customers. And we are your hosts, Christina King, Chief Commercial Officer. And Mark Wallace, Chief Operating Officer. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Jackie Sutton. Jackie spent 30 years in aerospace industry, most recently as Chief Customer Officer at Rolls-Royce Civil Aerospace, where she was responsible for the global customer base of airlines, including airline operators, aircraft manufacturers, and lessors. She led a global multinational team with responsibility of winning sales, building the order book, and then serving and supporting global customers. She stepped back from full-time corporate life 18 months ago in order to create a new chapter where she could give back to the industry through time spent mentoring and coaching earlier career colleagues, trying to attract more diverse people to join this amazing industry. And then finally, as a board member for Farnborough International, the organizers of the world-famous biannual airshow. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Great to be with you this morning. So, shall we kick off with our first question? Can you explain to the listeners a little bit about your role at Rolls-Royce? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was an incredible privilege, really, to be able to lead a very capable multinational team of diverse people, people with many different backgrounds. I think we had somebody that had studied medieval English literature. We had other people that were, you know, very well-trained engineers that had moved across to the commercial side of the business. They were based all over the world. So we had some central um, kind of service centers, if you like, which are there to look after the airline customers in that particular region. So Asia Pacific was served out of Singapore. We had one in Beijing looking after the Chinese customers, one in Abu Dhabi serving Middle East and Africa, and then one in Washington, D.C. for North and South America. And then, of course, not to forget the very glamorous location of Derby for all of our European customers. But the main thing about having those service centres was that we wanted to make sure that we were in the part of the world that was close enough to the customers that we could employ people that actually looked like them, sounded like them, you know, spoke their language, whilst also having skills and experience from Rolls-Royce HQ, you know, which is Derby, circulating out in order to to also bring their experience. And then in addition to those service centres, we would have field service engineers who are often actually embedded with the airline customer, which is invaluable when you're looking not just to be proactive in your response to the customer, but also, of course, from a commercial point of view, if you want to develop new services or new ways to make a difference for that customer, then you need to really understand what makes them tick to be able to identify what the problems are that we might be able to help them solve. So the field service engineers were an incredibly important source of not only immediate support to the customers, but also of intel, if you like, of other things, services that we could develop in order to help 
the customers. Obviously, you know, my tenure in that role coincided with the, the pandemic. It's absolutely true that that was probably one of the hardest experiences of my career. I mean, Rolls-Royce, it's well documented in the public domain, struggled to basically it's for its very survival through that pandemic because the way the engine business model works you're paid by the use of the engine so if the airlines have grounded all of their aircraft then your cash stops coming in you've got a problem and you know again my team you know were just extraordinary they really rose to the challenge despite being having to do things virtually of course those that were embedded were even more valuable than ever because now they were actually sharing that experience with the customers and the team kind of set about working with them to see how we could support our way through the pandemic but also you know how we frankly could make sure that we were top of the queue when the airline managed to raise some cash to actually get some of our bills paid because there were airlines that were still flying particularly cargo aircraft Um, In fact, cargo aircraft came into their own during the pandemic because people still needed parcels delivered, you know, PPE needed to be delivered. So quite a lot of cargo aircraft were still flying. Uh, So we needed to kind of be able to gather that information, make sure that we were billing the people that could pay us and all the rest of it. And then also, of course, in my role, because I was a member of the leadership team of Civil Aerospace, you know, we had a tough time um, having to enact 9,000 redundancies through the business um, in order to reduce our cost to be able to survive. But the the behaviours, the, the example, you know, the lot of my colleagues set and a lot of the people that work for Rolls-Royce was incredibly humbling. You know, people really rose to the, to the challenge and recognised the, the real challenges that Rolls-Royce was experiencing. You know, we took part in the ventilator challenge, for example. You know, there was a lot of examples of really important things that people did, not only for the company, but also in supporting each other during the pandemic, Um, you know, which I'll always be, you know, cherish in terms of memories. Somewhere around all of that, you know, I I turned to a ripe old age. And uh, for me, the pandemic reawoke some memories that I'd got of my mum becoming ill quite young. Um, and it just kind of stimulated thoughts that actually I've always wanted to create another chapter where I can use my skills and experience to give back and to help the industry, but, you know, the people within the industry. Um, so I thought, okay, that, that time has come. And happily for Rolls-Royce, you know, it's chock-a-block with incredibly capable people. So I knew that it wouldn't be a problem uh, replacing me. Sure enough, you know, there's, the team remains to be an excellent one. And I'm now thoroughly enjoying myself, you know, as part of the Farnborough International team and working with an organisation called Women in Aviation Aerospace Charter um, and spending my time kind of coaching, mentoring and helping wherever I can. So that's where I'm at now. That sounds like a, an amazing journey. I did have a couple of follow-up 
questions on some of the things that you said. I mean, especially in the unprecedented times of COVID, I mean, every, every kind of business had to either change up their game, innovate or scale back. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm quite interested to know, you know, out of those, what, what from a business point of view, how did you kind of, what were the kind of extraordinary innovative things, if you can share those, that, that came into play during that time would be really interesting. Yeah, so the... The main sense of urgency was driven by the fact that the aircraft manufacturers, as well as the airlines kind of grounding their aircraft, had massively reduced the number of engines that they demanded from us. So inevitably, you know, with all of that inventory in your supply chain and your sized to build 500 large engines and you're being told, actually, we only need 250 I think that the innovations, I would say, were firstly around people in that for those that work on the shop floor, they need still needed to come in. And we needed to be able to make sure that the factories and the working areas and the, the rest areas where they were going to be working were safe. And again, the innovation was really just the way that people adapted to volunteer to go in and help the health and safety expert people to actually ready the areas for our employees to work safely. And then the other thing was that the innovations kind of evolved because I think like all of us, you know, for those first few weeks, none of us really knew what to expect and what we were going to do. But over time, you know, you gradually saw other things that could be introduced. So the first thing that our IT guys had to do was find a way from having not been particularly virtual in any of our meetings to actually quickly adopt Microsoft Teams and other kind of virtual aids and roll those out for people, which, you know, for a large corporation, 50,000 people worldwide, you know, is no mean feat, but achieved that. And then, you know, the, the ones that developed over time were really around people and their needs. Because I think for the first few months, it was new, people were a bit scared, you know, some people, um, as the vaccines began to roll out and, and people, some people were getting or finding it very difficult to be at home, you know, maybe they'd got elderly parents they were caring for and young children that weren't in school and they were trying to work, we discovered that actually what we could do was also create safe areas in the offices where people who really couldn't survive being at home, you know, for the sake of their own sanity or just needed a few hours a day could actually drive in and safely work there. And, you know, those, again, those buildings were ready to kind of short notice. And then from a business point of view, one of the amazing innovations that happened was the adaptation of the engine sensor information that we already use, but cobbling that together with other databases that we got in order to gain really important information about which aircraft were flying for which airlines and in which parts of the world. Because another thing you're under pressure to produce, of course, for your investors and for um, for the banks that are considering whether to lend you more money was some kind of forecast of when things were going to come back or how would we know which types of aircraft and how many would be flying again, you know, in three months' time, six months' time. 
So the data of what was actually happening out there was really important. And then also being able to interpret that and put that together to run scenarios on what the recovery could look like. And I'm proud to say that I have had a part of the very capable team that worked for me were our marketing people that look after um, intelligence around the market. Uh, we've got a, a young man who's now gone on to be the chief economist for Rolls-Royce. He and the team around him did some amazing work looking at all of that data and then creating these scenarios, which we then worked with finance and, you know, with head office to kind of agree, you know, that we could kind of gather around and put our name to and say, okay, here's our worst case, our middle and our upside. And we really pinned, you know, all of our financial forecasting, our operational forecasting and so on was then all built around those scenarios that the team working for me first was able to develop. So many innovations around people and also around the business. So we'll talk about lots of challenges, I'm sure, that, that may be ahead in the industry in general and, and maybe maybe specifically for Rolls-Royce. But just to, just to finish off on, on COVID and the challenges that you've described and the innovative solutions that, that arose from people just just getting up and doing things, mm. has that now come to an end in, in the aerospace uh, industry? Or are you at the other side or is the industry still still coming out the other side? It's really going a lot better than people um, feared would be the case. I think if you are in the short haul sector, so just to clarify, Rolls-Royce specialises in the large engines for long-haul aircraft, which has taken longer to recover because, you know, inevitably, if you're flying international, you're relying on all of the borders to be open between the different countries that you're expecting to fly to. And China being so late to reopen caused some kind of slower recovery for long haul. That said, it was predicted that long haul would take longer. So it was still very much in line with what we had expected. But I think that if you in the long haul segment, you'd say that you're this summer, you'll feel that you've recovered. I think that the short haul sector was already there by okay. the end of last year. So okay. by Christmas, mm. the bounce back in terms of people's desire to reconnect, you know, has been incredible. And, you know, I don't know if any of you have been to an airport recently, but... I, but I went travelling to America through COVID. It was very wow. difficult to yeah. get there and I had to get special permission and letters from companies mm. uh, that I was visiting. And we could only do it if the innovation went to them. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it was, an em it was pretty much an empty flight. Yeah. So I don't know how they commercially manage that <laughs> no no and in some cases they had to keep flying also to partly to keep pilots current but mm -hmm. also sometimes it's easier than storing the aircraft to keep the aircraft rotating but you know that then drives other other challenges particularly around you know subject that we're going to come on to in sustainability mm -hmm. but but travel itself gets mixed reviews and mixed views mm -hmm. in uh, in the press mm -hmm. But I know from speaking to you previously, you have very strong views on, on travel and its importance to us as humanity. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I think that 
travel connecting people is a force for good. I genuinely believe that. I think if you think about stereotypes, prejudice, misunderstandings, you know, they tend to arise from lack of awareness, experience, particularly of people of each other. Travel has provided, and the air travel has provided the opportunity to connect people that would never otherwise have been connected. It's also, you know, very closely linked to economic growth. If you look at how economic growth arises for countries, you know, a lot of it arises from their ability to export products that they developed to bigger markets that are out in other parts of the world. So it's not just the the flying of people, you know, it's also the flying of goods. But that doesn't mean that the travel industry and the aviation industry itself shouldn't take responsibility and do something in our climate emergency about the impact that it has on the climate. And, you know, I I think that the aviation industry, and I know we'll come on to talk about it, but is actually being very front-footed about what they need to do and has, you know, not been forced to address it. They've been front-footed about what commitments they're making and what they recognise they need to do in order to contribute. But, you know, the aviation industry is responsible for 2.4% of global emissions out in, in the world, which at first blush, 2.4%, you kind of feel like, well, is that much? But of course it is when you compare it in relative terms to the number of people who actually fly. Because in our part of the world, you kind of start taking a little for granted. I think particularly in my lifetime with the advent of low-cost carriers, you know, I remember as a child, it was still unusual to be able to afford to go on a flight. But over, you know, the last 30 years or so with the advent of low-cost carriers, it's quite normal for people to take several flights a year. Um, two or three, you know, which historically would never have been affordable. But still then, if you look at, you know, it's hard to estimate, how do you estimate the number of people that fly regularly? But I have come across some research done by a US non-profit organisation, which estimates that the number of percentage of population that fly regularly is about 3%. So if you think that 3% of the population is actually responsible for 2.4%, of the air travel emissions, you know, then you start seeing, yes. And actually, the other thing that's completely true is that over time, as other populations, more populous countries of the world grow their economic wealth and the middle classes begin to also want to travel, I'm thinking of India, China, you know, Africa, then it's something that that is going to grow. It's, It's inevitably going to keep growing but it can only grow if we're able to do it sustainably. Everybody accepts that, in my experience, within the aviation industry. And so, you know, therefore, the measures that that are being developed, I think, are really important. I think it'd be, I mean, it'd be really interesting to hear your perspective, because, you know, coming in into this podcast, it's really lifting the lid on what's happening in in your industry and your experience. So, I mean, what are the types of kind of action that the aerospace industry is taking to kind of be on this front foot and, and make those changes? Well, I mean, there is 
still a ferocious debate. I wouldn't say that doesn't need to be. I think there should still be a ferocious debate about what's being done with air travel because, you know, that needs to keep the pressure up also. Um, and it's right that people should question, you know, especially when you hear those stats that I just mentioned. But another one that always gives me pause for thought, because I've flown there a few times, is a return flight from London to San Francisco, you know, puts about five, five and a half tonnes of carbon out into the atmosphere, which is the equivalent of a family car being used for two years, you know. Um, so it's, it's a lot. Um, so all of us, I think, who care about, you know, climate emergency and, and fly, you know, we're all keen and agree that we want to do something about it. And in some cases, there are things that can involve just not using aircraft. Um, so in France, for example, they have banned air travel on journeys of less than two and a half hours between city pairs that have high-speed train connection. So there's quite a lot of ifs there. So if there's a high-speed train connection and the travel time is less than two and a half hours, you won't be able to get a short-haul and flight and there's no strike because we we tried to do that quite recently and our our uh, train was cancelled so unfortunately we did have to fly to germany well yes but air traffic controllers are often on strike at the same time yeah. as it is. <laughs> um but yeah so in some cases it is it can be as simple as recognizing that there's another means of getting there um but Pricing can make that difficult because, you know, a lot of people in the UK would point out that you can fly domestically more cheaply than you can get the train. So there's still quite a conundrum there in terms of, you know, the economics of what makes it work. But in talking about what's being done, so it'd probably be useful to split the market down because the market kind of separates itself into different segments. There's what you call the commuter planes. A commuter plane would be fewer than 50 seats doing, you know, on average less than an hour's flight. These kinds of aircraft, it's been, you know, all of the research shows, could actually be modified to either be electric or hydrogen powered. Um, And in fact, there's a project that's just gained some more funding and they've created a business out of it between Cranfield Aerospace as part of affiliated Cranfield University and Pilatus Britain Norman. So Britain Norman manufacture the Islander kind of light aircraft that's used sometimes to fly to the Scilly Isles or to islands off the north of Scotland. They formed a business together to develop electric hydrogen fuel cells, which could then be fitted into an islander and solve that kind of segment of of aircraft. The secret is, you see, that it's a small enough aircraft with few enough passengers going a short enough distance that you can cope with the added weight that inevitably comes from adding in kind of battery or fuel cell kind of power. The second category, so that would be the commuter category, or you'd probably put all small aircraft, light aircraft into that. But they're responsible for kind of less than 1% of the overall 2.4%. The second segment is what we call the regional aircraft, which are between 50 and 100 seats. And they would fly between 30 and 90 minutes. And they 
contribute about 3% of this carbon problem from the aviation industry. And again, electric or hydrogen powered solutions could be appropriate for them. And actually, Rolls-Royce Electrical is working on a project with Technam, which is a regional aircraft manufacturer, and Vidaro, the Norwegian airline, because the Norwegian government has a fly net zero um, ambition. But they also have a topography in the country, which means that sometimes aircraft are needed to reach some of the parts of the country that they need to be able to reach. So there's kind of a recognition there that finding a, a solution that adapts aircraft is going to be something that's necessary for them. Then you start getting into the bigger sectors of the market, which all of us would be more familiar with probably that you, you will have flown on, which are the short haul or the medium haul. So starting with short haul would be an aircraft of 100 to 150 seats doing 60 to 150 minute flights. Now they contribute about 24% of that carbon impact. And this is now the domain of the Airbuses and Boeings of this world who are obviously motivated to do something about it because they want to continue to produce aircraft but recognise that they need to be able to adapt and the primary solution here is likely to be sustainable aviation fuel uh, which I'll come on talk about more but there could be at the smaller end some hydrogen application and certainly Airbus is putting a lot of work into looking for hydrogen solutions um, as is Rolls-Royce has teamed up with EasyJet to fly this class of aircraft to look at solutions there as well. On the medium haul size, now you're at 43% of the carbon contribution. And the reason it's greater is this because you're flying longer flights with larger aircraft. So you've got more people on it, you've got more baggage, it's heavier, it's therefore burning more fuel. These aircraft would have between 100 to 250 seats and be flying 60 to 150 minutes. So they're flying the same kind of range as the short haul, but they've got a larger aircraft to do it with and therefore they're burning more fuel to do so because they're heavier. So you're now in the sustainable aviation fuel category. If you do the trade, you know, of either hydrogen or battery, it, it simply wouldn't be worth carrying that extra weight around. So the battery, I'm sure you would all understand, is heavier, but my understanding on the hydrogen side, so it would be liquid hydrogen for which you need heavy very well reinforced fuel tanks that are literally four times the weight of, of a normal kerosene fuel tank on an aircraft. So you can quickly see that the trade's not going to work if you're trying to lift that much weight off the ground, then the benefits that you're going to make, you probably have three passengers <laughs> on it by the time you've got all the hydrogen in it. And then last but not least, because this was the main area of the market that uh, Rolls-Royce works in is the long-haul sector. So these are the 250-plus seat aircraft, the wide-body aircraft, doing more than 150-minute flights. So if you're flying that flight we mentioned from London to San Francisco or to Singapore or, or, or even to Dubai or the Middle East, you're going to be on one of these. And the long-haul sector is 30% 
of the overall carbon contribution. So for the aircraft type, probably your medium to short haul, you know, is in terms of quantity of aircraft, that's why it's a higher percentage. There are simply more of those kinds of aircraft out there. But sustainable aviation fuel, again, is is the solution that is needed for that. And just just to help us understand sustainable aviation fuel, what what is that in in simple terms? It's it's not hydrogen. This is uh, we're not talking about a gas that is held at pressure, like like with the hydrogen example, where you need your reinforced fuel tanks. This is uh, fuel at ambient temperature. But w- what is it that makes it sustainable? sustainable yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's sometimes also called biofuel, and it's fuel that's very cleverly made out of waste oil or fats or domestic waste. And the plants are taking this waste material, and you guys would probably understand it better than me, but Fischer-Tropsch technique is similar to a Fischer-Tropsch technique by taking that waste and then converting it into a fuel. The reason it's sustainable is that it's coming from sources that are non-food stock or water supply related. And, you know, in a way, you're kind of recycling the carbon that would have been made to produce that oil in the first place that's now a waste oil. So it's quite a smart solution. And the attraction of it is that it has 80% greater efficiency from a carbon footprint perspective than kerosene does. So it's a huge contributor. You know, it, it automatically makes a difference if an airline is, is flying with that instead of with kerosene. Um, and the other beauty of it in terms of all of the complex logistics around airports and keeping aircraft fueled, it behaves very like kerosene. So you can, you can pipe it through the same fuel supply lines. Um, you can upload it into the fuel tanks. The the aero engines can operate on it without modification. So Rolls-Royce is just, you know, by the end of this year, will have certified that SAF can be used on their engines. Um, so there are a lot of pluses that are going to make sustainable aviation fuel, you know, the substance of choice, if you like, the thing that's going to be able to make a difference to help the airlines meet their targets. I have got a question yeah. on, on that because, I mean, it sounds it sounds too good to be true <laughs> that you can just put the uh, sustainable aviation fuel. I just wondered, because it is coming from kind of, I don't know, renewable or waste oil sources, does it have to go through a process to make that at, at a certain level? Because I know they have trouble in the recycling industry on the kind of quality of the polymers, for example. I just wondered, does that kind of translate into that your industry? Yes, and they're far smarter, smarter people than me could explain yeah. exactly the, the process. But there are a number of startups, but also larger organisations. There's a, there's a business called Nesti, N-E-S-T-E, in Finland that has driven some particularly interesting um, technology, but also been able to start producing it um, in fairly large quantities, because this isn't something that's going to happen in the future, it's already happening. So something around 440,000 flights have already happened using sustainable aviation fuel. Now it's been a blend, so often it's been because of the ability 
to to get enough of it, partly the cost, but also because it's still being proven, it's been used as a blend, but it's available from a number of European airports and in the US. And the airlines, you know, I was at a conference just this week called Sustainable Skies, um, where we had the Director General for IATA, which is the International Air Transport Association, which is like the trade body for all global airlines. It's a guy called Willie Walsh. He's well known, used to run British Airways. Um, But he was making a very clear point that the airlines are ready to buy it. They just need more of it because IATA has led the industry to make a commitment to be net zero by 2050. And sustainable aviation fuel is a big part of that journey. It's not the only thing that needs to be done, but it's a big part of that journey and an essential part if um, if the industry is going to be able to get there. So you talk about Rolls-Royce certifying sustainable aviation fuel for use by mm-hmm. hopefully the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Is that 100% or is that is that still a blend? My understanding is that you would be able to use 100% of SAF. Mm. Um, so by the 1st of January 2024, Rolls-Royce could be using SAF in, in commercial flights, but the challenge is not a certification one. The challenge is actually, actually getting access to the fuel in you know, sufficient volumes. That's right. So people with Rolls-Royce engines, but all with other kinds of engines. However, there are, beyond the engine, there are um, aspects around the fuel tanks on the aircraft. And to, the Airbus and Boeing have to continue to do some work around 100% SAF and its ability to circulate around the aircraft and the fuel tanks. So to get to 100%, there's still some work to be done, not just by the engine manufacturers, but also by the aircraft manufacturers. There's a whole industry challenge. Correct. But in the meantime, the amount that SAF is being used and its availability continues to grow. But the supply problem, yes, is the biggest. I mean, the, the quantity is kind of hard to get your head around, but the numbers that people cite are that, you know, 8 billion litres will kind of be available by 2025. But by 2050, 450 billion litres of this stuff are going to be needed. So if you think about you've only got 25 years to grow from 8 billion to 450 billion, is why the industry as a whole, and I include the airlines, the aircraft manufacturers, the engine manufacturers, the regulators, everybody working together to also work with government and with industry to be able to set up sufficient number of refineries, sufficient number of capital, frankly, to build those refineries. There's a lot that needs to happen. And that hence the summit this week, you know, we were very privileged to have the Secretary of State for Transport, Mark Harper, with us, making all the right statements on behalf of the government about their commitment to help the industry get there. And that's what's needed, you know, internationally, government as well as industry needs to come together because of the scale of the challenge. I mean, this is true of climate change overall, because the other organisation I should mention is ICAO, who are the International Civil Airline Organisation, Civil Aviation Organisation, which is basically the United Nations organisation for the aviation industry. 
it's the ICAO meetings where the governments of the world come together to make their commitments around aviation. So in the case of the UK, it's the ICAO meetings that the Secretary of State would attend. So joining all of the dots from international government to national government to industry, you know, there are lots of players that are all involved in making sure that this happens. So that's that's really interesting to hear from kind of the, the different industries and the government and the international government that's involved. And it's that whole ecosystem trying to make change. And I'm really interested to know kind of what's driving it. Could it happen quicker? Who's who's really kind of pushing it forward? Yeah, I think undoubtedly there's a feeling that it needs to happen more quickly because the scale of the challenge is so great and the airlines for one you know feel you know we've pinned our colors to the mast by making this net zero 2050 commitment but we need the supply in order to have a hope of being able to get there and some governments are being more proactive than others would be the the truth um the us government has found ways to really not just incentivize more SAF to be produced, but also to make sure that US industry benefits as a consequence. I mean, you've seen this in the electric car industry as well, with the Biden government very overtly putting their investment monies behind their own industries. In a similar way, in relation to SAF, the US government is going to provide incentivized credits for use of SAF um, in order to encourage greater use. Yeah, boost that industry. And to, to then, you know, that means that there's then an income that then itself generates more production. Um, and it means that if you're an investor, you know, in a refinery or something, and you're wondering where to, to invest your capital, you can see a program that is going to generate revenue that gives you a greater sense of assurance around the business case. I think the feeling is that that similar kind of policy, incentivized policy, will be needed in the UK and in Europe to, to achieve the same thing. I mean, the UK government has done it, haven't they? I mean, look at the electric car incentives that were introduced in the early days, the subsidies that you're able to get, basically a discount if you were buying an electric vehicle. So it's using public money to kickstart, if you like, and it's not kickstart because it's already happening, but to turbocharge maybe is a better word for it. And I think something that sets that stall out as a government policy that is clear, incentivizes industry and remains in place for a long enough period uh, is really what what's going to be needed. I think that's really interesting because what it's encouraging is the first movers to get there and to accelerate. And once that kind of hard curve has started, everybody else will kind of get involved and then it becomes, you know, a, a sustainable industry. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the airline industry, so the IATA Director General I mentioned earlier, is is makes a very good point about that incentivized carrot approach being much more effective than the stick approach. So government has historically taxed airlines in terms of carbon with air passenger duty, it's called. So those of us that fly will have paid that extra tax on the ticket. But the point they make is that that tax doesn't then get recirculated and used for green purposes. So it's just an extra tax. 
if you build something that properly incentivizes, and we pay more on our ticket, but it's incentivizing around SAF production, you know, you'd feel better, wouldn't you? Because you'd be able to see how that is in itself being used, you know, as an investment to accelerate and and grow the supply. Absolutely. And I think some of that transparency in the industry would be really helpful. I have started to see that actually when we've been buying flights, it says this one's more kind of carbon sustainable and and gives you a bit of a choice now. And you can see that being the next step. Yes. Of course, it must take years to build a refinery. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if you're starting with an existing infrastructure to convert it to create SAF instead of traditional kerosene, Mm you're only going to enter into that sort of investment in your infrastructure, whether it's brownfield or otherwise, mm. if you've got a long-term plan exactly. to generate revenue from it. Yeah, exactly. And you have to believe, you know, as an oil or a, a jet, a, you know, kerosene producing business, that there's going to be a tip over at some point in the future. So, um, you know, Rolls-Royce has been doing quite a lot of work with with people like Shell, BP, etc., to get the message out that, you know, at some point this is going to be the future for your aviation fuel supply anyway. So why not begin to invest and start to convert over? Um, because, you know, I think to ever get to that kind of scale, you are going to need those big players to also be involved and to have converted their former kerosene producing refineries into the sustainable version. Yeah, because the infrastructure's there, isn't it? The whole whole business case that I suppose it's the when's the balance tipping? Someone's got to start yeah. early and first, and yeah. and kind of move that along. Yeah, and of course, you know, with any business, it's always hard to know, you know, when to make that jump because you're still needing the income from your existing business to provide the money that's going to create the investment capital to do the conversion. So there's always quite a lot, you know, of complexity around that. Um, But, you know, as we said a minute ago, investment cases are always more helpful when you've got very clear government policy framework that's stable and is incentivising the right behaviours. It's a theme that we've been discussing with almost every podcast guest, this concept of uh, multiple different partners within industry working together to solve a global challenge. In this case today, it's it's the production of SAF. Uh, and, and often the, the answer or the question at least is where does the government sit in, in relation to stimulating this growth to, to provide a solution? In your case, we're not just talking about multiple players in one industry. We're talking about at least two industries where you've got aviation and the production of the fuel for the aviation industry. So Presumably, government has even more of a role than it might if it was just one industry. Yes. Um, And also because it's so global, isn't it? Most countries in the world have at least one airline, you know, sometimes more than one airline. And that's where ICAO's role, the the organisation I mentioned a minute ago, the International Civil Aviation Organisation, they have, you know, a relationship to the COPs that comes back via the UN into all of the different heads of government. So there are kind of, there's top down as well as bottom up links, you know, that have to be made 
in order for this goal to be achieved? I think the only um, kind of final comment I've, I've got on this is that, you know, the the aviation industry is really on the global stage, as you've just said, and everybody's eyes are on, on the industry to see mm-hmm. how you're going to do it, mm-hmm. you know, automotive. And we, we should be looking between different industries to mm-hmm. see, you know, th- the good innovation, the kind of moving forward, how, mm-hmm. how is it happening? So, I've, I've, yeah, I found this, this kind of part of the discussion, you know, really, really fascinating. Well, I think it's not um, natural, is it, for the human race to have done such great innovation, to invent flight, I mean, you know, those we've all seen the right the right fl- footage of the first right flyer. You know, the first powered flight, you know, happened at Farnborough. You know, um, nineteen oh eight. It just feels wrong that you would then ban something that has been such an amazing innovation, a force for good in the world. I think it's much more about having the confidence that you can innovate your way to do it sustainably. And sustainable aviation fuel, as I've mentioned, is is a big initiative that isn't just a future ambition. You know, it's something that's already happening. It's about scaling something that we already know works. And that seems to me to be a really good place for us to be in terms of knowing what we need to do. So I think making sure that we recognise that aviation being sustainable is a force for good it does bring the world together and it's something we all want to happen because connecting people is so important and reversing achievements from the past just doesn't feel like the right thing for us to do it's innovate our way forward not reverse back and undo things we've already invented Absolutely. Progress. We should yeah. be progressing <laughs> moving forward. <laughs> I did want to ask you, um, as you mentioned earlier, about kind of the data side that you, you kind of got around in, in the COVID times. Like, how, how does data play a part in kind of this whole ecosystem moving forward? Obviously, Rolls-Royce was, you know, the, the power by the hour is always held up as a kind of gold standard first one that kind of started that area. Well, what do you think about how that's going to kind of help us move to that place? Yeah, well, something we we didn't touch on, which which we probably should, is, you know, talking about the carbon footprint or how much carbon is emitted by these different aircraft. How How is that measured and where does it all come together? And actually, this is where ICAO um, has played quite an important role in that they've introduced a programme which is kind of mandated for all international airlines called CORSIA, which stands for Carbon Offsetting and Reduction Scheme for International Aviation. We always love our acronyms. And it's it's effectively a reporting system where the airlines are required to provide the data around the flights that have been completed and therefore the carbon that has been emitted into the atmosphere. And therefore that sets the goal of the amount of carbon that they now have to find a way to offset in order to um, to be neutral. Now, they introduced that in 2019. It's been in a pilot phase for a few years, but that is now something that all airlines have to comply with. And because it's an ICAO initiative, the UK government, if you like, is the administrator of that for any airlines that operate 
internationally out of the UK. And the airlines, as, as I was saying, have this obligation to report their CO2 emissions on an annual basis. And they effectively have to buy carbon credits for how much CO2 net net they have emitted and then provide offset plans for how they're going to to neutralise them. Now, today, because some of that may be proven through use of SAF, but in other cases, it's, it's through other offset measures, which everybody knows are not the long-term solution, but today are being used. And in some respects, it's kind of got to be used as a first wave to almost get people in the habit of the Think, fact that yeah, thinking about thinking it. about like, it and the fact that they have some responsibility to do something about the carbon that has been emitted. So all of that data and there are multiple measurement tools that have been developed by multiple different businesses and including IATA that must be quite a confusing world for an airline. Um choose, you know, which one they're going to use to that it needs to be approved, you know, as being accepted by ICAO as being the right kind of giving the right kind of information and so on. But all of that is is obviously key um, in, you know, if you, you've got to measure it to know whether you're improving it. So we had a fascinating conversation about innovation driving sustainability and uh, how we do that across uh, a global industry or in fact several industries in order to achieve a solution around sustainable aviation fuel what what other uh, exciting innovations uh, have you come across that are also supporting the sustainability agenda in aviation mm -hmm. well there's one that springs to mind which i think is really quite cool but also if you think about it is is kind of an obvious one that you end up being surprised isn't already out there in greater numbers. And it's called wheel tug. You know, when you're, you're getting on the plane and then you sit there and then eventually the aircraft gets pushed back by some kind of tug. Or when you've landed, it gets pulled into position because they've turned the engines off and then it needs to still, the aircraft still needs to be guided back to the stand. Um, well, there's a business that's introduced something called Wheel Tug, where they basically install very simple, a twin electrical motor device into the rim of the nose wheel of the aircraft, which means that it's powered by the APU, which is the auxiliary power unit at the back of the aircraft. So ultimately, SAF still has a role because that's powered by SAF. But this electrical wheel tug can basically then be used to steer the aircraft out onto the runway or out back onto the ramp. And the advantage of that is that in certain cases at some airports, airlines have to use engine power to guide themselves back to the stand, which is obviously much less efficient than just a couple of electrical motors on the nose wheel being able to guide the aircraft around. So there are some kind of smaller innovations, but really important ones that are still going on that are really fun to see. You know, if you get the chance to ever go to Farnborough Show or other shows like this, you can see some really neat sustainable technology that's being developed by um, by often, you know, SMEs as well as the larger companies. Well, you might, might have to invite us, Jackie. Very welcome. As special guests <laughs> to the next show. That would be amazing. Very welcome. I love that, that 
new innovation because you once you scale that across the world actually that does start to make a massive impact or, or a bigger mm-hmm. dent into the the carbon emissions so well thank exactly. you for sharing that so this has been a really interesting discussion today Jackie um, I think one of the fascinating things in the beginning that you said is how, how as a company, Rolls-Royce kind of really innovated on the people side uh, through COVID. And I, I was I was looking at the parallels from kind of our, our business as well in Tribasonics. It, it was exactly that in the beginning as well. We kind of expanded our, our premises to kind of uh, spread people out. We looked at working in a different way, making it safe. So there was lots of parallels with that, that it's really fascinating to hear that some of the, you know, the large corporate had the same challenges as us on a on a kind of bigger scale so that was great I thought kind of the things you discussed about data for forecasting in the market and the scenarios was was really interesting because that's that was obviously a bit of a game changer uh, for the market I really liked what you were saying about kind of I think a lot of people forget this it's kind of travel is about connecting people and this force for good mm-hmm. We find that a lot of our customers are, are global and, you know, we, we have a lot better kind of interactions, collaborations, innovating when we see them in person mm-hmm. because we have that time, you gain trust and it's it's a real big enabler. So I, I've found that quite refreshing to hear. And, and then on sustainable aviation fuel, which is the main topic we've really got into, fascinating subject. Uh, technically, there's there's some challenges, no doubt certification validation of anything in the aviation industry we we know is 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 really critical um but actually what what's really come through for me is uh, is beyond the technical validation and very much more into a, almost a political sphere of partnership collaboration for the sake of good in the world and how do you do that across uh, multiple uh, not only multiple partners, but multiple industries and the frameworks that are being put in place at a global level, which I think a lot of a lot of us, if I could say general public, don't don't see. But there's clearly a lot going on in the background to meet this goal by 2050. So uh, that's been really fascinating and encouraging uh, as uh, as a, a traveler to know that that is going on in the background. Um, to um, to ultimately get to a net zero position in the industry. No, that's great. And I think that, you know, the good news is that the flying public does care uh, that aviation becomes sustainable and therefore the pressure slash encouragement to keep working towards it, I think, will remain. And governments recognise that travel is needed and aviation is needed in order to support and fuel the economic growth that they want to happen in their country. So the right things are in place, I think. It's about accelerating it, making it available, and then allowing all of us not to not fly, but to fly sustainably and differently in the future. Well, thank you for giving up your time to meet with us and to really get into some of the detail on the subject been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And I wish Tribasonics all the very best in your very exciting future. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Check out the show notes for more information and links to the topics of discussion today. This episode of The Driving Force was brought to you by Tribasonics. 
We hope you enjoyed our series delving into what's really driving sustainability in industry. Thank you very much to all our guests, Warwick Matthews, Vincent Rico, Michelle Lintz and Jackie Sutton, MBE. We hope to be back soon with a new series. So if you've got any feedback or suggestions for new topics for us to explore, do let us know in the comments. In the meantime, thank you for listening.